This is the podcast episode for the QED Changemaker series. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, Principal Consultant at QED Consulting. Our guest today is the former Chief Digital and Marketing Officer of Fuji Xerox Singapore. She is a business and marketing transformation leader with over 20 years of experience in senior leadership roles across the globe from first world markets in Asia Pacific to emerging economies in Central and Eastern Europe, South America and Africa. Prior to this, she has built diverse industry knowledge from her tenures at Singapore Economic Development Board, Singapore Technologies, Sembawang Corporation, IBM, Denzu, and Young and Rubicon. She's adept at B2B marketing and change management, where she has built and rebuilt local and regional marketing go-to-market models. Let's welcome Susie Wong to the QED Changemaker Series podcast. Hi, Susie. Great to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me to the QED podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Ah, it's our pleasure to have you. So how have you been? I've been good. Keeping busy. So I know we've got a lot of questions for you today. So well, before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about your corporate career thus far? Well, I think of my professional journey sort of in three phases, right? The first phase, I basically dabbled in a variety of areas from business development right through to investment promotion and marketing and services, right? And mainly in government and quasi-government organizations, right? So I think of my first phase as an exploratory phase. Phase two is what I would describe as a defining phase. And that's when I spent many years in IBM, basically in the B2B domain. And where I had nine job role rotation from country to region to global and explored the gamut of marketing communication specializations. So that is really the defining phase where I professionally grew up. Where I am today in the third phase, right? I think of it as a transforming phase. It's really spurred on by curiosity to look at how I may be able to learn, grow and contribute in a different setting. So Fuji Xerox is the first milestone of this journey where I am seeking to create my second S-curve. At Fuji Xerox, I delivered on the remit of building a new marketing organization, develop a new construct, go to market, as well as uh, led in the creation of a new brand and corporate manifesto from paper to digital transformation. Oh, that's a lot of things that you've done. (laughs) And this is just the beginning of phase three of your life, right? Your career life. So I've got questions for you that deals with a little bit on the nastier side or rather the most unwelcome portions of careers, which is on crisis. Now, the senior leaders tend to worry about three areas, right? So I would like to hear from you. What are your perspectives of them? I'll go one by one and maybe we can just hear from you. And what's your take on that? Let's start with the first one. So how should the senior management team like your CXOs and your CMOs and CEOs deal with external crisis issues? When I think of crisis, right, I relate it back to how human beings respond. So in a fight or flight mode, we all default to our base or root behavior. So in an organizational context, right, I liken it to three things, okay? Number one, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? And I think in crisis, it's when this becomes paramount because this becomes the moral compass in terms of how organizations navigate and make decisions. So that's a no-brainer, I think. And I remember reading a Forbes article, uh, they say that 2020 is when purpose went mainstream. So then the second thing, right, besides who we are, is how do we operate? And how do we grow? So my experience in navigating the pandemic in 2020 in terms of these two areas was really 
focus on one thing and I would describe it as the network of teams. To put it very simply, I personally think of it as having a coping team and having a competing team. What do I mean by that? So in the height of the pandemic, we were looking to respond on all dimensions, right? We have the business continuity team. So that's the coping team for one of a better description, right? Whereby we have to deal with workforce and safety, health, you know, regulations, manpower requirements, supply chain issues and customer engagement. So that coping team basically have their hands full in terms of trying to manage, navigate, just trying to stay afloat. So that was how we operated from a structure and all that perspective. Then having said that, right, not long after, we also formed what we describe as a competing team because it's not enough that we're just coping on the day-to-day -day issues and all that. We need to be ahead of the curve when this crisis is over so that all cylinders can fire. So I think of it as the competing team. How are we going to grow and compete. And incidentally, this team that was formed back in Fuji Xerox was called Project Future. Within this team, there are two lenses that team members will look at. One is in the immediate future. How am I going to capture the market, right? Now that everybody is working remotely, you know, with the flip of the switch, how am I going to capture the market in terms of offerings that we can come up today, next week, next month? Immediate capturing of the market in terms of offerings based on what we're seeing. So the good news is that we are in the digital transformation workflow workspace, right? So that really fits right up our alley. Then the other aspect of what the Project Future team looks at is what are we going to do six months down the road? What are the capabilities that we do not have that we need to build together with the ecosystem so that we can be firing all cylinders six months down the road? So when you look at it, the two sort of big teams, a coping team that deals with the everyday issues and the competing team that deals with capturing the market, making the market for tomorrow. You know, when I look back, this was pretty much how we sort of navigated the crisis, right? And these two basically grow up to what I would describe as a nerve center. So the nerve center was basically the senior leadership team. You know, we had what we describe as 30 minutes stand up twice a week, check-ins and all that, and you know, the schedule of that sort of tapers over time. So that was really how we looked at it, you know, our purpose and how we organize to operate and how we grow. Right, and then centered around the moral compass of the organization itself, right? We actually worked in both the public and private sectors. Is there any difference from what you've seen in terms of how they deal with crisis at the management level? It's interesting you should say that, right? Because I was literally just reading an article that talks about emotional responses or emotional requirements based on different stages of crisis. It was actually a McKinsey article that talks about the first phase being resolved, whereby there is a need for specific information and the approach is more instructional. So when I think about how we were in the period of the circuit breaker, it was really about this is what you should do. The virus can be transmitted through contact. Please do not meet your customers face to face. Please have meetings virtually. So resolve stage. And I think from a government perspective, at that point in time, nobody really had, you know, has any idea. I mean, today we're told that the pandemic would last three years and then seven years, right? And looking at the rate of vaccination by Bloomberg. So the instructional, the resolve stage, I think probably has a bigger role to play from a government space. Then I personally think that we are probably at the resilience space whereby we're looking at, you know, what future plans have we got? How do we, given that work-life balance has become, you know, or integration has become a complete blur, how do we practice self-care? What is the future? And what are some of the positive stories we can spin? 
it sounds like the public sector seems to have more of the coping mechanism than the competition mechanism. And the public sector seems to have a bit more bias towards the other side. <laughs> to give the government new credit, right? I do think that the oiling of the engine in terms of the financial enablement and all that, and that is basically the impetus for the private sector to then take on, given all these financial building blocks that are in place. How about let's move on to something a little bit more, I won't say difficult, but challenging, right? Which is the human capital. How do leaders then motivate their teams as well as themselves during a crisis? Very challenging. There are a few sort of leadership traits, right? That I think we have been bombarded with. And I would say empathy is one. And when I think about it, we say, oh, empathetic leadership. When we think about empathy, it has got to be empathy in action at various levels. So I think of it as from hardware to hardware. Hardware, H-A-R-D, to hardware, H-E-A-R-T. So I've had so many personal experiences on that front. When we first started with remote working, everybody got on the calls. And then we say, okay, you know, so that we can remember what you look like, please turn on your videos, right? But the thing is that when you talk about practicing empathy, it's like, hey, you know, there are co-workers amongst us who live in shared spaces, who may not be comfortable with showing a video or background, virtual or otherwise. So how do we be empathetic on that front? And we also have colleagues who are in the field and they are in the field having to service customers whose offices may be in premises with reported COVID cases, you know, and there's concern for their own well-being and safety. And when Malaysia wrote the movement control order, we had employees who were commuting daily who suddenly are you know, stuck in Singapore away from their loved ones for months on end. So when I think about empathy and leadership, it's really about the different layers that all these sub-segments I just described come from. And how do we ensure that we are empathetic, that we you know, even attempt to feel how they are feeling? So I think of it as the metabolic rate for the teams. Teams have got different metabolic rates. And it's a learning process, you never get it right. My ex-CEO, at the start of each meeting, he would personally acknowledge every single member in the core. Of course, we're not talking about town halls and stuff like that, right? But he'll personally do that. And we consciously make it an attempt to understand the personal situation of the employees, whether it's you know a sick parent or a child or whatever. So I think empathy is such a cliche word, if I may, but it is so, so hard to practice. So I think that's one. The second trait sort of for me is vulnerability. Again, very much talked about. In the heights of uh, CB, I remember six weeks, eight weeks into that, I was mentally exhausted. And one evening, I wrote a note to my boss and I said, you know what, I am a very driven individual. I am optimistic that we're right this way, but this pace is not sustainable because people are just working on the clock and all. And to his credit, you know, he listened and, and we made changes in terms of level setting expectations and what have you. But I think what was important also was that I shared that personal conversation with my team because it was impacting everybody down the line. And I think in crisis and all that, it's okay to say when you don't know some things, you know, if you know 70%, that is the 70% that you know, it's important to demonstrate that we're in this together and we're vulnerable and we learn as we go along because the boss and all that does not need to be the smartest kid in the room have all the answers the answers come from the people will empathy as well as vulnerability be able to or rather is it sufficient enough to motivate the teams as well as yourself i think in crisis actions speak louder than words so you can say things like oh self-care is important and all that but unless in terms of the corporate norms the behaviors that we put at place support that otherwise it's just lip service so for example self-care but if emails have been shot out 24 by 7 
So I think there were organizations that say, you know what, Fridays and no meetings, that gives people the time to sort of mentally recalibrate. I think that's important because I also do think that at one point, the socialization online, like Zoom and all that, was getting to be a bit too much because it's like, if I spend eight hours on Zoom calls for meetings, the last thing I want to do is have a Zoom happy hour. <laughs> I do think it was gone past that and sort of trying to find out what works for different people because it's, you know, actions demonstrate that do you believe what you're saying and therefore is it true? And you mentioned earlier that this would eventually lead to exhaustion, which then nicely moves into my third question for you, right? How do you then manage and balance this limited reservoir of emotional energies then? I think different people draw strength and energies from different areas, right? So for me personally, I think of it as four dimensions. In fact, not in equal parts, but definitely these would be the four areas that I personally sort of subscribe to. First is the spiritual quotient in terms of where do you anchor your faith and therefore your own moral compass and your value system. So that's one. Secondly, in terms of mental quotient, how do you stay mentally, intellectually stimulated? What are you reading? What are you listening to and all that? Not in any particular order. Thirdly, emotionally, in terms of relationships and all. Last but not least, but physical. So we all know about the whole mind over matter and diet and exercise and sleep and all that, right? So how does that come into play? So I think it's very important that, uh, you know, in a crisis, we may go overdrive in one of the areas and therefore we tend to neglect the others. So it's very important that we sort of do our own mental recalibration and ensure that we ourselves are in equilibrium, anchored and centered, so that we can be a guiding path and add value in the interactions uh, to others. Right. The other thing that I think is of great interest, especially during a crisis, is about decision-making. So we know that whenever a crisis hits any organization or any organization faces, we are bombarded with not just information, opinions as well, right? Then how do leaders then go about making decisions in an uncertain environment then? You know, when I think about making decisions in an uncertain world, right? Mentally, it conjures up the image of a telescope and a microscope. How do you wield the two instruments, right? Because one telescope requires you to come up with longer term plans that are coherent. And then a microscope requires you to come up with quick short fixed solutions that are effective. How, how do you do that, right? So I think in uncertain circumstances is where there is no monopoly on information. I do think, and, and this may be controversial, in terms of decision-making, you should probably involve more people. Why do I say that, right? So I go back to my earlier example in terms of the network of teams that I talked about. Uh, when we were dealing with the pandemic, there was a lot of information that was very dynamic and changing very quickly. And you do need different people with different subject matter experts to be on top of that. Not just collecting the information, but distilling it and making sense of how our organization should be responding. So that's why I say involve more people. Some you know, in the audience, or maybe yourself, Ryan, may be familiar with this uh, concept, the fishbowl model, whereby a meeting is convened metaphorically in a fishbowl hosted by the decision maker, attended by stakeholders and a couple of subject matter experts. There are like a couple of empty seats, whereby attendees in the gallery you know, may take these seats to express their opinions if they have one. So the, the operating principle is that everybody is entitled to an opinion but may not have a vote. So I do think that in such uh, situations, 
then we have partners, a variety of diverse views in real time, in quick time. But of course, at the end of the day, the decision makers will still need to call the shots. Lah. But at least opinions are not limited to who speaks the loudest or who's in the inner circle and what have you. Right? So that could be one way. And then the other thing is that I think we need to be very cognizant of different people weather crisis differently, right? Who are the individuals? And they may not be our usual suspects in terms of being you know, resilient, who have the temperament to be able to write, right? And these are individuals that we would want to empower them, you know, with responsibilities and all that um, during this time. So you probably need a very courageous team who will give you a very honest and candid opinion of the situation as well, right? I mean, the worst thing that any leader can have is to base their decisions based on filtered lenses. <laughs> and then everything is hunky-dory, but only to realise that, no, everyone is to pitchforks right outside your door and you don't even realise it. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the people making the recommendations, if they look at it through rose-tinted glasses, then of course, it's a different view, right? But I do think that there will also be checks and balance within a network of teams whereby it's not just the opinion of one person, it's probably an opinion of a couple, at least a few people, right? And then if there are disagreement in views, then hopefully that would surface and be discussed and deliberated on. So correct me if I'm wrong. So let me paraphrase a little bit of what you just shared. Open yourself up to a diverse set of views, but then the decision-making should be limited to key stakeholders or maybe just the leader themselves who must hear all the views then decide based on all the information that's been presented. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that describes by and large you know, how we've navigated 2020. Right, and let's move on to one of your forte areas which is on communication or rather crisis communication, right? <laughs> I'm sure as, as a CMO, that's part of your, your responsibility in any organisation, right? You have to handle that too. I really want to ask you about that. how should crisis communication in this age be managed? I think in terms of the basic principles, right, I don't think they have changed all that much. In the sense that when it comes to communications, it needs to be an inside-out approach. So regardless uh, of what it is, the communication must always be made known internally employees because sometimes I'm surprised at how employees find out about information about the company from external channels. So I think the fundamental rule is inside out. Employees must first be aware before you open up the channels to customers, business partners or social media for that matter. So what you're saying is that there should be a priority in terms of the information flow, is that correct? Sequencing, yes. And the sequencing could be minutes, right? I mean, it could be that you talk about it internally and internally also we have a variety of uh, channels and mediums, right? Depending on the audience, it could be a town hall, otherwise it could be an email, the internet, all that. So we're not talking about time lapses, significant time lapses. It could be minutes, right? But from a sequencing perspective, I do think that employees need to hear it from the management, from the bosses and all that before they read about it in social media. That has not changed in, in the world that we live in. Then I think one thing that we do not practice enough when it comes to employee communications versus what we practice for external customer communications is message management. So when it comes to market segmentation, we say, oh, you know, depending on who our target market is, this is what we say, value proposition A, B, C, D, E. But when we think about our employee cohort groups, right, they're not all equal. They're different sub-segments and it's imperative that we message accordingly. So a very specific and real-life example. In Fuji Xerox, there were at least four different sub-segments that we messaged to. Number one, the employees who work remotely from home, 100%. Number two, there are few engineers who continue to work in the field to visit customers in the customer's premises. Number three, we have off-site employees working in our customer's premises in the banks and all that. 
and last but not least, the customer-facing employee. So even in rolling out crisis communication, it is a not one-size-fits-all. It must be, depending on what my role is, what I would be interested to know, how can we tailor the communication? Of course, there's a baseline in terms of what every employee should know, but over and above that, based on the sub-segments I talked about, right, there could be another layer that's added on. So I think message management is so key and it's something that we should really do more of. And I think from your opinion, we uh, across the industry, we could do a lot better in that particular area, right? Which then leads me to the other part of this question. There's this school of thought that most people think that there should be full transparency that's going on. I mean, right now, every organization is dealing with the fact that information is so porous. Uh, there's no such thing as embargo anymore, even with threats of like secrecy acts, and then it still gets leaked out. So then what should be shared during a crisis? What we share is one dimension of the lens, right? The other dimension of the lens that we need to look at is the audience, and specifically the majority of the audience. So in terms of communications about the state of the business and all that, right? I think the basic stand is that clear, simple, transparent is the way to go. But of course, you know, we always say, right, it's economical half-truths and stuff like that. So the question is, how much of the truth do you sort of share? One of the, you know, uh, sort of guiding philosophy that one may, may think about, right, is that you should share what people want to know to the extent possible. You may have to take a leap of faith in terms of the maturity of the audience, in terms of their ability to digest the information and make something out of it because it can go very wrong if they take it the wrong way. And the context of what I'm talking about is in relation to employee communication, how the business is doing and all that. There is a need for a dose of pragmatism and realism because if we sugarcoat something, for example, like business performance, we're not going to get away with it some months down the road. So I think from that perspective, it is important to be as transparent as you need to be, you know, thinking five steps ahead in terms of what you may have to share next. So I think from that perspective, that can sort of guide us in terms of sharing what we need to share. At all points, right, always be mindful of the employee's reception in this instance. Right. Then is there the best time to actually communicate such matters to key stakeholders. Is there like a nice sweet spot or based on the experience, no? Uh, best time to say certain things? I think in terms of uh, communication, right? I think the question I always ask myself is that when it comes to timing, right? Is that if I communicate this at this time, you know, today versus tomorrow or whatever, what difference does it make? I think that's something that we need to consider and not necessarily in crisis, right? If I want to communicate, a piece of information to you now. Is it going to change your behavior? If it doesn't change your behavior, whether it's today or tomorrow, then from that perspective, the timing is probably less critical. But if it's going to make a difference in terms of how the audience is going to receive and process the information, then that would be a determinant in terms of the time. Right, right. This is actually very crucial advice for all of us to actually understand as well. The value, the information and the time sensitivity of the information that is being provided as well. So one of the other areas of uh, major concern, especially during crisis, is actually should organizations apologize? The deeply ingrained corporate side of me would say, please do not incriminate your organization without approval of your legal counsel. 
<laughs> Always speak to keep your legal guys close. <laughs> yeah, so that from a corporate point of view is you know it's sort of I guess the the baseline, right? But taking a leave from my recent course, uh, neuro linguistics programming, right? It's been said that when it comes to communication, seven percent it's words, thirty eight percent is tonality, and fifty five percent is action. So I also think that perhaps. Depending on the nature of uh, the issue at hand that warrants the apology, perhaps there could be subsequent interactions, right? Whereby the apology can be communicated via actions in terms of making good something else, a subsequent deal or whatever, right? Compliance, uh, permitting, and all that. Right? So that is how I look at it. I mean, these days, even if you were to, I guess, like you rightly mentioned, sometimes an apology without incriminating yourself. It's just to show some form of empathy to your customers and your clients. Anyway, the affected parties, and I personally don't think that organizations should be penalized for showing empathy. I mean, this is a very crucial, valuable—I won't call it a commodity, but it's something very valuable, treasured that builds trust with the key stakeholders as well as the prospects and clients. I mean, that's the relationship between both parties. I see that on a daily basis in terms of communications feedback that comes through our CX channel, the voice of the customer channels, whereby you upset customers and all that. And to your point, right? It's it's not necessarily saying that hey, you know, we're wrong and all that. Right? It's about I hear your complaint. You know, or I hear your area of dissatisfaction. Let me look into that, and I apologize that, you know, is giving you grief, right? I think in the context of those, that's acceptable because we need to acknowledge and recognize, right, and, and give a voice to the emotions that our customers are feeling. Otherwise, you know, if you give the standard response, well, let me look into that and get back to you, right? It will drive the frustration even higher. Right? So I think in terms of acknowledgement, recognizing that there is an issue at hand, and apologizing. For the emotions that's associated with it, I do think that that will not get us into legal trouble. Let me finish off this interview with a final question. I think this is one of the more critical ones as well. And I'm going to move back to the management layer. How should leaders go about allocating the critical and very often limited resources during a crisis? The way I would look at it is: uh, What if you don't? What if you don't allocate? Is it an outcome that we can live with, or can we survive it? One simple example for me that I lived through in crisis was that we had daily 15 minutes stand-ups with my CX leader and my comms person. We would look at all the VOC, the feedback that's coming in, and all that. And you know, sometimes we spend 15 minutes, sometimes we spend a longer time. But it is essential, and it was a practice that we did, you know, for months on end. Because if we do away with that investment of time, the circumstances can be catastrophic. So the way I would look at it is: Can you afford not to? If you can afford not to, then by all means walk away. But if you cannot afford not to, that's probably something to look at. Then, if I were to sort of pan back and and look at it from a broader perspective, right? I would say that at the very so you know specific situations aside, at the very basic level, we need to continue to invest in our people, the well-being of our people, right?、Um, I think of it from two perspectives. One is from hygiene, wages, and all that. Then the other bit is investment for the future, right? And we need to be ready, you know, when the economy opens up fully to be able to fire all cylinders. This is the time, and I truly believe it, that we need to build up on our skill sets to be ready. So thank you, Susie, for sharing your candid views as well as your valuable insights. I'm sure all our fellow industry leaders listening in would benefit greatly from it, and will be much better prepared before the next crisis hits us. 
Most of all, thank you listeners for tuning in to our QED Changemaker Series podcast. For more information on QED's leadership development solutions, email us at info at qed.sg. That's info at qed.sg. Do remember to subscribe to our channel and be updated on our latest episodes. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, and I look forward to having you in our next episode.